I have never quite forgotten the look on her face. She smiled easily and her eyes sparkled. At age 16, she should have been home with her parents, but she had risked everything to seek asylum. She escaped her home in Ethiopia in the middle of the night by foot. When she reached the border, she and hundreds of others boarded a flatbed truck tra to traverse across the desert of Sudan. When the refugee smugglers dropped her off in Tripoli, Libya, this 16-year-old girl got on a small wooden boat that was way overcrowded, and she attempted to make it all the way across the Mediterranean Sea to the safety of Europe. It was the summer of 2016, and I was a volunteer with a refugee organization sponsored by one of our partner churches in Italy. They had sent me to this tiny island that I had never heard of before in my entire life, a place called Lampedusa. Usually it's a tourist destination, but Lampedusa had become a gateway for refugees who were fleeing sub-Sahara Africa. It was only three hours by boat from Tripoli. The little island of Lampedusa is actually the southernmost tip of Europe. This beautiful young girl from Ethiopia became my friend and she was often helping me throughout the week with translation. She was one of thousands of unaccompanied minors who had fled their homelands because of famine and brutal dictatorships. I was absolutely smitten, both by her remarkable courage, but also by the ways that she was always taking care of the other refugees like she was their big sister. One day as we talked, I realized that she didn't know she was on an island. She thought that when she got off the boat at the dock of Lampedusa, that she had arrived on the mainland of Europe. And so I pulled out a map and I tried to show her that she was still many hours away from man mainland Europe, even if she took the fast ferry that was run by the government. Her sparkly eyes immediately turned to panic and fear. What if she never made it out of this makeshift refugee camp? What if they sent her back to Ethiopia? In an instant, she realized that her life it was hanging there in limbo. She was not yet where her heart had longed to be in a safe place where she could learn and work and thrive. Her dreams hung in the balance as she sat perched on a tiny island between the pain of her past and the future of her dreams. At the time, her life seemed as far away from my life as two lives could possibly be. But today, I realize that now that COVID has hit, all of us, in one way or the other, stand in this in-between place, a place of limbo. Since March, our hearts and our lives have been altered. We are stuck here, figuratively, on a little island, not back there in a terrible place, but not yet where we had all dreamed of being. Sometimes our limbo, well, it can seem a little bit frivolous, like, we had planned a big cruise for an anniversary trip, and now, who knows when we can travel again. 
Or maybe we had planned a big wedding for 200 guests, and now, well, it's just like 20 friends gathering in mom and dad's backyard. But for others, the limbo is more serious. The owner of a restaurant invested his entire nest egg in a great location with great food and a great chef and now has been forced to shutter the doors. A couple working two jobs suddenly find themselves homeschooling their four small children. A great-grandmother spends her 100th birthday inside her room in the nursing home with her family standing on the curb in the parking lot holding a sign. A congregation aches to be together in person so that we can break bread and drink wine and hug each other. This fall, here in our sermon series, we are looking at the ways all of us might recalibrate in the midst of a pandemic. How do we find our footing when the whole world seems to be in limbo? I was really startled last month when I read these statistics. One year ago at this time, one in 12 American adults reported experiencing some kind of anxiety disorder. Today, that number has risen to more than one in three Americans. According to the CDC, in June of this year, 11% of Americans seriously considered suicide. That is double the number from June of 2018. And you know the highest group of those facing this extreme depression? 18 to 24 year olds and also unpaid caregivers. How then do we recalibrate in the midst of a pandemic? Today we will look at a scripture from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Jeremiah stands up to speak during the greatest crisis in his nation's history. The nation of Israel, about 600 years prior to the time of Jesus, is undergoing a political decline, military destruction, and a season of exile. Scholars debate which moment in history marks Jeremiah's words. Was it before the disaster and misery began, a warning that he gave them of sorts? Or was it in the middle of the catastrophe that he spoke? Or did he speak from the vantage point of hindsight to a people whose emotional and theological footing had been knocked out from underneath them overnight? We're not sure if he was on a little island or if he had already made it safely home. What we do know is that Jeremiah offers God's people a concrete way to recalibrate. In the section that we read this morning, he writes this moving poem that is a poem about hope. He concludes the section that we read today, there is hope for your future. Your children shall come back, he promises. Life will get better, have hope. But how do we get to that place of hope when we are stuck? I can't tell you to hope any more than I can tell you not to be afraid. Hope comes from within. It's a feeling. It's a longing. It's part of our soul makeup. There is no button we can push 
to move from despair to hope, and Jeremiah knew that hope could not be forced or coerced. So how does Jeremiah comfort the people throughout the nation? How does he inspire them to discover hope again? The first thing Jeremiah does is acknowledge the pain and the sadness and despair of his people. No glossing over what is awful. Even in this section on consolation and hope, Jeremiah uses the word weeping or crying five times. The people are heartbroken. But Jeremiah also uses the image and word dancing two times. Grab a tambourine and join the dance. He paints a picture of real life where one moment we weep and the next moment we dance. And Jeremiah paints a picture of God right there in the midst of the weeping and the dancing. A prophet like Jeremiah doesn't necessarily foretell the future. Instead, he names where God is at this very moment, the very moment that we are in now, in limbo. He speaks for God who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Last week, our church board met for a planning retreat, and we were led by our consultant, Dan, who lives out on the East Coast. We were in a Zoom call with Dan, and in my small group, Dan shared a story. He recalled a day many years ago when he was fired from his job. He was working at a church-led organization, and he was absolutely stunned and bruised and as he left his job at that church organization, he realized he didn't have much use for the church anymore. And on the day after he was fired, he realized he didn't have to get up really, really early and make that long commute to the office. And so he was out on his morning walk in the neighborhood at a little bit later time than he normally took that walk. As he walked down the sidewalk, some guys pulled up in a car and rolled down the car window and said, Hey, Dan, get in the car with us. We're going out for breakfast. And it was a small men's group at his church. They had breakfast together before work once a week. And on that day, they listened to Dan and supported him. And several of them shared their own stories of getting fired. And that one moment changed him and made him want to cling to the power and consolation of the church. Their everlasting love was a reminder of God's love. Sometimes just knowing that we are loved is enough to evoke hope. Jeremiah says that the people experienced, even in the worst moment of their national history, grace in the wilderness. And so there is still a possibility to hope. Recently, I read a new book that described a little vignette that unfolded during the rise of Nazism in Germany. There was this 91-year-old grandmother living in Grunewald, Germany, who loved to shop at the large department store in her town. She was fashionable and savvy and always dressed well as she went out for her shopping trip, but one day, the Nazis staged a boycott of all Jewish-owned businesses. And her favorite department store was owned by a Jewish family. The 91-year-old grandmother defied 
the Nazi orders. She strode into town, marching right past the officials and went right into the Jewish-owned store to shop on Saturday as she always did. We have never heard of this 91-year-old grandmother, but it was her grandson, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who became a Christian martyr by defying Hitler and participating in a plot to take Hitler down. The grandmother's simple act of faithfulness and love of neighbor influenced her grandson to stand for justice and peace and love in a world that was crumbling all around him. But you don't have to look far to find examples of how simple acts of love can inspire hope. My neighbor called me to say that his mom had been placed on hospice care after a long illness. He grew up in our church and I've known him since he was in elementary school. And so I said to him, is there anyone you want me to call, anyone in the church you specifically want to know? And he said, yes, yes, there is. Could you call my faith mentor? <laughs> my jaw dropped. I was stunned. He was in pastor's class 28 years ago. But his faith mentor made a lasting impact on his spiritual formation. And he now wanted his mentor to be praying for him. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Even in times of wilderness and worry and despair, we can experience hope. The prophet Jeremiah has a name for this hope, the kind of hope that rises up out of despair. He calls it something very concrete. He calls it planting a vineyard. If you plant a grapevine today, it will be at least three years before you will be picking grapes, longer to get just the right vintage. So to plant a vineyard is to believe that the God who loves us in the middle of the wilderness is the God who will be with us for the very long haul into an unknown future. To plant a vineyard now is to express our hope that we will one day be able to pour a glass of champagne and celebrate in person again with carefree joy gathered with those whom we love. Everyone, everyone who has ever mentored a child or a teen has planted a vineyard. Everyone who stood for justice during Hitler's rise, they were planting a vineyard. Everyone who has loved a friend through a crisis has planted a vineyard. And you know, 100 years ago this fall, some folks came far out south on the growing edge of Kansas City and planted a church. And you and I are drinking the wine of that love and joy on this very day. What I wonder is this. When the pandemic is over, what will people say about us? 